0: You're listening to the Stand With Us podcast, featuring some of the best content previously broadcast on Stand With Us TV. Thank you for standing with us to fight anti-Semitism and support Israel around the world.
1: Today, we are joined by one of the most instrumental Jewish people in the Soviet Jewry movement. Refusing to take no for an answer over and over, Pamela Cohen fought a huge battle for decades for the civil rights and the freedom for the very isolated and persecuted Russian Jews. She mobilized a network of activists, eventually helping to create a huge movement and bring hope and freedom to millions of Russian Jews. She spoke before Congress and developed critical relationships with numerous U.S. elected officials. She served as a chairman of the Chicago Action for Soviet Jewry and served as the national president of the Union of Councils for Soviet Jewry. Today, she remains a hero to Natan Sharansky and so many refuseniks around the world. She has recently released a book called Hidden Heroes, One Woman's Story of Resistance and Rescue in the Soviet Union, telling her remarkable story, which is available on Amazon. It is an absolute pleasure to introduce to you Pamela Braun-Cohen. Welcome, Pamela Cohen. Thank you so much for being with us here on Stand With
0: Us TV Live. Roz, I am so privileged to be here at stand with us with itch, which is really my favorite organization my favorite i kind of just say movement in contemporary in the contemporary world so thank you for having me
1: oh thank you for your kind words thank you so much so wow pam you are probably one of the most important people that our audience has never met uh, and uh, and today they get to hear your story of courage and relentlessness and determination that is just unbelievable. The more I hear about this, I, I still have yet to read the book. I'm very excited about doing that. But today we want to hear your story. And before you begin telling us about how you you put your hands on this situation and helped to rescue literally millions. Of Jewish people from Russia. Before we learn about that, tell us what motivated you at the very get-go when you were a teenager.
0: I was in my I was in my late teens, early late teens, when the information about the Holocaust became much more publicized, and books were written, both fiction and and nonfiction about families, about what happened in Europe. And I could not I could not comprehend how American Jews let one million children go up the smokestacks. I somehow I could understand how Europe let it happen. I guess I must have been very cynically historically cynical at a young age, but I could not understand Where was American Jewry? And when I heard about Jews being arrested in the Soviet Union, something viscerally went off inside me that my watch. No, no.
1: So that is that remarkable feeling that many of us have had over the last 20 years also. So I can completely relate to not on my watch and Hinani. Uh, here I am to help. So, so thank God for you, uh, and thank God for for all the people that are involved in the Stand With Us movement. So, it's it's just so important to put your hands on things when you're upset about something and get involved because every single person can make a difference. And, so, yeah, I
0: believe you could make a difference.
1: Yes, believe absolutely because you can. Yes, you uh, can look, look at what you did. So, okay. So take us through the story. How many, how many Jews approximately, I know it's hard to tell exactly, but how many approximately were in Russia and what was going on for Russian Jews that really got your attention and made you really upset?
0: So by the time I came on the scene in 19, I had already known enough of Jewish history to know that there was anti-Semitism under the czars um, and that there were pogroms and there were Cossacks and there were, you know, nightmare stories um, that sent our grandparents to America Um, and that that had intensified, actually, under the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 where there was um, an attempt and a successful attempt to eradicate all Jewish culture. So, and religion. Um, And so by the time 1970, about that, about that period of time, there was nothing available to, in the by way of Jewish education, Jewish knowledge, Jewish books, Jewish teachers, Hebrew language um, for, between what we at that time thought was three and five million Jews um, going from through from the Baltics, uh, latvia and and Estonia, Lithuania, all the way to Vladivostok, almost to um, Alaska. Um, and not only that there was no Jewish culture, no no printed material except vestiges that someone might have had of something from their grandfather, there was also that the Jews had been deliberately cut off. Um, there were, there was, it, as Churchill called the Soviet Union, uh, a land that was behind an iron curtain. Um, and it was essentially impenetrable. Censors um, uh, watched the ma- incoming mail, to from between Jews in the West and Jews and their family members in the Soviet Union. Tourists, if there was tourism, were controlled by in-tourist guides that were KGB. The KGB c- controlled the vast border of the Soviet Union. There was no information pouring in, no information about Israel, and no contact between Soviet Jews and their own people in the West. And so by the time, um, by the time, as I said, I came on the scene, you had a country that was very much today like maybe North Korea, except it was filled with the third world, the third largest Jewish population in the world. So this was a uh, sort of
1: imprisonment. Uh, yes, of course. But you talked about the um, ethnic cleansing of Jewish culture. Can you speak a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. um, Beginning, I think it was really mostly under, under Stalin that um, he, they they used uh, actually they enlisted part, some of the Jewish population, the Absexia Um, Jews who were communists. Um, And by way of that, I I, I want to just make a statement that for many Jews who were living in the Pale of Settlement, that was uh, the the, um, part of Poland that uh, was absorbed into, into Russia. For many of those Jews who were living in what we call the um, this small little shtetls of of, of eastern um, Russia, these Jews, w- 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 during the communist revolution, they they decided they wanted to be doctors, and they thought there was an opportunity to become lawyers and to live like uh, lives away from um, the shtetls and in the cities. And so many flocked to the cities, Moscow, and Leningrad. Um, So the children could have a Jewish education and those Jews, many of them, some of them joined the Communist Party and adhered to the communist dictum to eradicate the yeshivas, Jewish books, um, the shuls, the shuls were closed the few shills that were remained open were controlled by KGB the rabbis were brought on by KGB um, and but and and literally by 19 by the 1960s even there was really nothing left maybe a child might remember an Ulta Zadie, but there was there was no no where to go for jewish education
1: pam uh, you told me about a plane hijacking and we very interested because that was uh, like a pivotal moment, I think, for a lot of people that Jews were trying to hijack a plane. And then the Leningrad trials. Can you can you walk us through that and how that had an impact?
0: Yeah, there were two um, very impactful uh, events, a uh, series of events. One was predating the Leningrad Trials, the 67 war in Israel, um, in which even on Soviet anti-Semitic TV, uh, the media showed parts of the battle. And the Soviet Jewish public could see Jewish soldiers in military garb with guns um, fighting for something that they did not realize was a Jewish state, um, even though the Soviets, as I said, the 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 message was that the um, Zionist state uh, was made of up of cowardice and soldiers who were throwing down their guns and running, and that they had lost the war. Jews could read enough behind the lines, between the lines, to know that this was. A Jewish state. This was a place where they were speaking a language where, that Jews spoke, and even through the through the, the smoke stream of anti-Semitism, they started to feel a sense of dignity and pride um, that came with an association of of the state of Israel. They. Internalized that old internalized anti-Semitist, self-Soviet anti-Semitism that they had internalized, suddenly transferred it it, it, it metamorphized, it, it changed. There was a sense of dignity. Jews could fight. Jews had a homeland. And they decided, some of them, that they wanted to go. They wanted to be in this homeland, that this was theirs, and they wanted it for their children. And so they started a complicated process of applying for an application to leave because there was no uh, legitimate immigration from the Soviet Union. There was no procedures for immigration. People just didn't leave the Soviet Union unless you were... You know, unless you were a communist, by the way, and then you could travel in first class any country you wanted to travel to or KGB. Um, So they decided that they wanted to try to leave and they found that they were hit with a, you know, a blank wall. There was no way they could leave and they were given refusals. They were refused permission to leave and they were given the name. It was translated into English called refuse Nicks." So for a number of years, these people who were trying to lead, mostly from Riga, Latvia, um, and from some of the smaller cities, um, started also trying to figure out how they could prepare themselves for life in their new homeland. And they found old books in Hebrew, and they found... Old uh, um, men from and women from the previous generations who could teach them, and they began to learn Hebrew. And I don't mean they; I mean one Jew from Ven- from from Venetia, one Jew from Riga, one Jew from here, from there, underground, surreptitiously teaching themselves an alphabet, teaching themselves a vocabulary certainly not grammar but teaching them words one word at a time elf miline we used to say and they were they 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 slowly began to find each other um as i said kgb is everywhere and for jews who started to um act in a way that was to assert their Jewish identity um, attracted the attention, of course, of the surveillance, the, the KGB surveillance. And they may, tried to go underground um, to hold seminars, to teach other people about anything they knew about Israel or Hebrew. And at some point after three years of, of refusals, applying and and, um, and being refused, a very small group of Jews decided that they had to attract the attention of the West to their plight. If the Soviets were refusing them, if they couldn't get permission to leave, if there was no way they could live as Jews and they couldn't leave, the only belief that they had was that American Jews, especially American Jews, could help them. And so they decided to throw up a firecracker In a desperate situation, which they knew, of course, would end in their arrests. And they attempted to take a plane from Leningrad to Sweden with the intent of removing the, it was a small plane, removing the pilot from the plane peacefully, you know, tying him up. Uh, They didn't have any kind of military weapons. They didn't have guns. Um, they all met on the tarmac in in, in Leningrad. I think mean, it was June 1970. And, of course, before they ever got anywhere near the plane, they were KGB and police and militia everywhere. They were apprehended. They were dragged off, thrown into prisons, and put um, in, tried in show trials. Um, and they were, two men were given the death Sentence. One woman, Sylvia Almanson, was among um, was among the defendants, and very well known um, former refusnik Rabbi Yosef Mendelevich, who has written his books and has gotten is very well known, was um, among them. Mark Dimschitz, who was the pilot, his book has just been published. Um, this was a seminal moment in not only in Russian Jewish history, but it's in Jewish history. Um, the West, uh, I heard the, the announcement on the news that Jews had tried to take a plane from Leningrad to Sweden and they were arrested. And in 1970, when there was a lot of terrorism going on in the world I could not conceive that Jews were hijackers. Something didn't seem right. And I started looking behind the scenes for information about these Jews. Um, and it was not publicized, Roz. I mean, it wasn't, you know, there wasn't a follow-up article in the New York Times the next day. There was no internet. There was, there. I, nobody else had heard the report. And I started, you know, trying to uh, find information. I finally found a paper in Pennsylvania, a weekly paper of that published information about Soviet Jewry. I don't know how they got it, but there was a weekly column and they advised to write protest letters to the Soviet embassy. Um, They gave the names of the defendants. Um, And I put together a group of young moms and we met and While they were writing about gun control and all kinds of social issues, I was encouraging to write letters on behalf of our people who were arrested in Russia.
1: Amazing story. Um, How long were those people held in prison? I know there was a trial and it was semi-public, as you say, Uh, but it seems to have been a catalyst for a lot of people. It was a moment. It was
0: a moment. It was a moment on, in, on both sides of the Iron Curtain. It was a moment in which Jews began, even, Jews inside the Soviet Union understood what had happened immediately because they know how to read between the lines. Um, and many, many, many hundreds of Jews decided to start to immigrate In the West, we also saw as the catalyst. And we saw that there was that there were thousands of Jews, maybe more we didn't know at the time, who wanted to leave the Soviet Union. And we began to um, demonstrate, write letters, and find each other, a group in San Francisco, a group in Chicago, a group in Long Island, small groups of of individuals who collected information and then began sharing the information.
1: It's amazing that you found one another and that there were people that cared. Uh, There always are. And even before all the social media stuff that you were able to find one another. Uh, So really that's in itself a miraculous uh, to to begin to have this movement grow uh, because of the pain and suffering of the uh, Russian Jews.
0: So you know it's hard even, yeah. can I just say that in terms of what you just brought up such a such a important point I was living in the north suburban part of Chicago and in 19 in the early 70s working by myself trying to get information I did not know that downtown Chicago 40 minutes away there was an organization called Chicago Action for Soviet Jewry um and at when when I realized that someone put me together with that because I we were just a small little nucleus of you know Highland Park ladies working on letter writing, um, it 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 was it made a huge difference because the woman that was running it was a very very knowledgeable sophisticated uh, activist, and I she really what tra- I, I say that she gave me a a PhD in Soviet studies. Um, and I began learning with her and she had connections with these councils um, throughout the country. And by 1975, 1976, we there was a, a, a union of these independent councils um, who were, I mean, consumed with what was happening to Jews in the Soviet Union. So Pam, just to recap, the suffering
1: that was going on the basically the the uh, ethnic cleansing of of uh, the Jewish culture in in Russia uh, the desire of people to leave to just be set free um, as people let alone as Jews uh, it was it was just uh, a lot and and you answered the call and you uh, You know, this is this is a riveting story to begin with. Uh, The the relentless work that you did is also so impressive. Um, I just want to stop for a moment and note that, Pam, there are thousands of people watching right now. Uh, They're they're coming from cities all over the world. And I want to encourage everybody not only to get the book, but also right now, if you have questions, please enter them in the comments section. And so that, you know, we, by the end of the show, we're going to try to get to as many of your questions as we can in the time that we have. So, so Pam, continue the story, please. And tell us you started to chair, you were, you became the chair of the local Chicago Mm -hmm. effort, and then you became a national chair. What, What was going
0: on? Okay. So, um, as I was working with Chicago Action for Soviet Jewry, um, under the chairman, I, she, um, gave me refusenik cases. And we had been co- collecting cases of people in the Soviet Union who were refused permission and who wanted publicity, who wanted help from the West. And what I did was to, bring these cases to different groups of people and tell them that they were in fact responsible for them. They had to write letters to them and write on their behalf. And, um, lo and behold, one of the people, one of the, it was a separated family. It was, a. He was a sci- he was a lawyer actually in, in Moscow, and his wife and child had been given permission to leave. The Soviets used to like to separate families, to discourage immigration. They not only arrested people, but they separated families for many, many, many years. Um, and we worked on this reunification of this family for a long time. Um, And then when he got permission to leave, I said to him, what else could we have done for you when you were in Russia? And he looked at me and he said, why didn't you come? Oh, and I booked Lenny and I booked our first trip to Russia and we went in 1978. And our the chairman of Chicago Action briefed us and the briefings were. Uh, very, very intensive briefings. You had to learn to read Cyrillic. You went knowing every single case, the person that you were to meet. You had specific questions to meet, to talk to them about. You had to bring back certain answers. Everything was memorized. If KGB stopped you at the airport, you could you had nothing on you. And we went to five cities and we... um They were my people. I I met people who were larger than life, people with enormous moral courage and stamina and vision, people who were, who believed in an ideal. Whether it, whether it was Israel, whether it was the right to leave a country, whether it was the right to practice Judaism, whether it was the right for cultural rights, whether it was the right to teach Hebrew, there were many, many, many different composites of this movement. It, um, but every single one of them was justified. And every single one of the people that I met were was a hidden hero. They were Magnificent people, and they were putting their children and their husbands and their wives through daily anxiety. Um, I just want to stop and say that when when you when you apply to leave the Soviet Union, there is a seventeen step process, which is nothing at all like making aliyah. By the way, it is uh, not just a; it isn't. It is bureaucratic, but it is a process, an intentional process, to turn you into a social, political, and economic pariah, because you have to notify the person who runs your apartment that you; they have to sign off on your application. You have to bring the application to your. Institute to your the scientific advisor to, or to your school um, and to all this all to all the schools that your children might be going to and you have to get permission from your parents. Now if your parents are from a, have joined the Communist Party in order to work at a certain institute, they will have immediate reactions from the government on your application, so many parents do not will not sign off on their children's application if they don't sign off, you can't apply if your parents are, try to get permission if your parents are lying in a cemetery somewhere i mean it 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 was it it was a an uh, it was a very difficult process to apply almost a privilege to apply and the soviets were closing down the offices the application process the application offices because they were called over offices um, when people started applying in great numbers by the end of the 1970s that were um they started simply just closing down the offices so people couldn't apply but if you were managed to apply you were By the end of the process, you had been fired. All in an extremely humiliating um, meeting of all your colleagues, you were defract of all of your degrees taken away. You were... The people in your apartment found you a pariah to, to be pariahs. You, you were really considered almost an enemy, enemy of the state. Why? Because Israel was a considered by the Soviet Union to be an anti an anti Soviet state. Israel was Zionist. Zionism, the the Soviets. Um, their position was they weren't anti-Semitic. The Kremlin alleged itself not to be anti-Semitism. They vowed themselves to be anti-Zionist. It's much like today, by the way, in America.
1: Um, Sounds very
0: familiar. Yeah, as I say, it's very much like America. It's very many things are very similar, unfortunately, running in parallel to the history uh, that we experienced in Russia, um, including, by the way, the conformity. Um, but because it was an, um, so um, virulently anti-Zionist, the only way you could apply, a, a Jew could apply legitimately to immigrate was through the state of Israel. There was no immigration and even if you were a Russian dissident who they were throwing out of the country, it was through Israel. Israel was the only place you could apply to, to go to Israel. Um, and so once you were applying to Israel, you were considered a Zionist, which made you fodder for the anti-Semitic press in Moscow, Leningradskaya Pravda, all the newspapers. There were pictures. They ran pictures of refusing. You could see your father, your daddy's picture as an as an enemy agent in a newspaper. They ran movies about 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 these people, and nevertheless, and then they arrested them. Of course, um, sometimes on fifteen day trials. Some those who were thrown out of their jobs couldn't get jobs because KGB made sure that no one ever worked again. Maybe you could get a job as an elevator operator, but if you couldn't get a job and you had a PhD, um, you were arrested for parasitism because it was illegal to not work in the Soviet Union. So you could be arrested for, if you were a refusenik, you could be arrested for jaywalking. It didn't make any difference what you did. And if you were holding a seminar, for example, in, in Leningrad, Um, to teach Jewish history, Uh, you could expect a pounding on the door and 15 KGB agents and taking the names of everybody there, not knowing who they were going to arrest. Or if you set up in Moscow again, a kindergarten for five-year-olds and three years old to be able to teach them what Purim was, they were terrorized by KGB guards who came to the door and terrorized these kids. Um, and yet, in spite of that, through all, through all over the years, people kept resisting in the Soviet Union. They they wrote letters to their own government. They were very they learned the letter of the law, the Soviet law. To to the fraction of the law, so that they would not so that they could use their law to the advantage they wrote to their uh, prosecutors, they wrote to the Communist Party, wrote to the Secretary General. And little by little, they started to send us the letters that they were writing to their own government officials so that we could publish them and bring them to the State Department and bring them as evidence of Soviet um, noncompliance to the international courts that they had signed allowing immigration. I know this is a lot of information. I, I it is a lot but it's it's incredible so so a
1: jew living in russia couldn't be jewish correct. and if they wanted to leave they were red flagged correct their parents were red flagged correct and yet the reason you call them heroes is because they continued to to ask to leave they they continued to do this because they felt so desperate they had no choice. They had to leave. And so, you know, and what if they didn't have you? What if they didn't have the
0: allies here? Uh, that was the whole point. Um, I look, I mean, what I'm not telling you is that I spent three hours a day in making clandestine telephone calls to refuse nicks for. More than ten years. and I mean three hours, almost every day, I talk to people on a daily basis. Uh, what we did was to collect documentation of the Soviet human rights violations and present them to the State Department and the Helsinki Commission and every and the, and the press um to build support for these cases. I mean, um, we had a congressional vigil where congressmen spoke every day at the, from the floor of the house about a refusenik family from the information we provided them. Um, so I was on the phone getting information daily, and there were there were cases that I was very afraid of, and they were afraid of. If we could keep the spotlight and visibility on refusniks, we could provide them some degree of safety. The worst thing would be as if they, we lost sight of them. And in fact, that happened to me. I had a uh, a refusnik who I was very um, involved with and met the first time in 78. Um, and by the early 80s, he was an underground Hebrew teacher teaching, I, I say underground because it's really not an apt word Um, It meant what I mean by it is that they couldn't declare themselves officially teaching Hebrew, but they taught Hebrew, even though it wasn't official. And that itself put them into a lot of danger. Um, And he was an unofficial Hebrew teacher. And I was very much afraid after he was. He lost, they they tried to keep him out of Moscow because that's where he had contacts with the press and with the foreign press and with his students. And they exiled him to Gorky, where Andrei Sakharov, the Academician, was. And I was afraid that if I lost track of him, he would disappear. And that's exactly what happened. He went to, <clears throat> I think it was Vinitsa. And in I think it was 1974 to celebrate Yom Hazmud with other refuseniks, and I lost track of him, and he was arrested, and he was tried, and he was he was he was put on a, you know trial in a show trial, um, in which, by the way, he wanted <clears throat> he asked in his trial in Moscow if he could conduct his defense in Hebrew language and get a translator. Wow. And did he? That's of course not. I mean, he, he spoke in Hebrew, but of course, but to me, that's a hero. To me, that was heroism. To speak truth to in the face of evil, and to 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 have the moral, moral courage to do what you believe in, in spite of the fact that you are going to be ostracized and penalized, that's a courage that we all have to learn to live by today. So, and what, what happened to him? What What happened to him? Was, he was. Um, I'll tell you what happened to him. He, he was tried. Um, and they used my letters to him, by the way, as part of the evidence. Um, he was tried for, uh, I think it was Soviet, disseminating so, anti-Soviet information and information. And he was sent to a labor camp in Siberia. Mm. Um, and he, um, I arranged for a letter for from President Reagan. To be sent to him and it was sent to him and he was called from his cell to the commandant of the camp and they looked at him and they said i have a letter from you is president reagan your friend <laughs> so he, said, in, he, he has a great sense of humor he says in a very thick russian accent he tells the story he says I don't care. If President Reagan wants to be my friend. He's my friend. <laughs> and, and ultimately he was released and he lives in, and he lives in a front. Oh, nice.
1: Very nice. Ah, happy ending. But a, a, what a trauma, what
0: a so trauma. Ross, I want to tell you that in 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 the, in the my years of doing this as a volunteer, I my phone rang day and night with traumas of people who were being arrested or people who were being sent to, picked off the street and sent to a Soviet psychiatric institution where they would be administered horrific psychotropic drugs. Because that way you could get rid of a Jew, an activist like Vladimir um, Kislik, you could just get rid of him in Kiev. You don't have to put him on trial and cause a sensation. So it was we were monitoring hundreds and hundreds of cases in 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 tiny little cities um not only in Moscow and Leningrad but it was it it was it was extremely tense and it was all we did
1: all you did for decades is that right
0: from the 70s decades.
1: 80s and into the 90s into the 90s amazing, amazing. and then you wrote this book so and then- uh, I wanted to take a look at some photographs with you that you sent us and maybe you could tell our audience a little bit about these, these incredible photos. So I'm going to ask, I wonder if we could bring up these photos uh, in real time.
0: This is in Lithuania. um, And here I am in a briefing Congressman Steny Hoyer, who is still, we all know, he's in the Congress on the way, on the right, and Dennis DeConsini, Senator Senator, De, Senator DeConcini, who were members of the Congressional um, Helsinki Commission. And I'm giving them a briefing there about the state of Soviet Jews. Uh, this is um, the annual meeting of the Union of Councils in Moscow. It was the first open meeting. In history, between Jews in the from the West, including Israel, and Soviet Jews um, from the Baltics to Vladivostok, and here we are in. Um, this is in Iceland, in Reykjavik. This is Joseph Mendelevich um, during the f- uh, first summit between. Reagan and Gorbachev. And here is here my husband and I are meeting President Bush at the state dinner for uh President Yeltsin. And this is Lenny and I at that first on our first trip to Moscow in 1978. This took place in Helsinki Finland um with a uh, student struggle for Soviet Jewry and uh, myself. And this was uh, at the time of Reagan's uh, trip to first trip to Moscow. He had come to Helsinki to make a human rights speech, to make a human rights speech. Uh, this was an ad that we took. This was a nonprofit organization and we were all volunteers, uh, but we took a, one page ad in the Wall Street Journal with a, um, an appeal by written and taken out of the Soviet Union surreptitiously by 73 refuseniks who were urging him to bring to Gorbachev their cases and the situation of Soviet Jews during his upcoming meeting. I think it was with Shevardnadze. And this is um, in front of the Capitol building um i'm I'm giving a briefing um to the the public and to the press and to uh members of congress and and this is the cover of my book, which I want to tell you um that numbers of people have said that it re that it's a page turner um and i four i had reports from four of my male readers that they cried. So I want you to know, those of you who are out there, that it, while it does show and, and depict and outline the, the history of the Soviet Jewry movement, it's, um, it's an eyewitness account that ha- of people. And I tried to write it um, very much like, uh, if possible, like a spy story. So it's, it's readable. Thank you for telling us
1: about these incredible shots. The, it's very, very moving. We have a lot of questions from the audience. I want to begin to uh, to get to some of them and see if we can answer as many as we can. So we have a question from Esther in Boston. Uh, what would you say was your biggest challenge during the years you worked so hard to free the Jews of Russia?
0: There were so many challenges. um There there were challenges in every area. Um, It was a tremendous challenge to get information out of the Soviet Union. Um, It required a complicated system of telephone calls. It required briefing tourists who were willing to submit to 17 hours of briefings in order to go to the Soviet Union. It was writing up cases. It was having credibility, um, getting credibility for someone like the president to be able to have the credibility to be able to brief someone like a Condi Rice, a National Security Council advisor, which we did regularly. Um, We didn't have clout. We had it wasn't a question of might. It was a question of right. And our passion and our absolute fanaticism on on accuracy um, to make sure that every fact that we presented was absolutely verifiable um, gave us a credibility with the government. Um, but on a on a more personal level, when you asked what one, one of the greatest challenges um, for me was, I hated, and was terrified of public speaking. I never wanted to appear before a public. And the only way that I could speak in front of um, a group, and it was extremely difficult for me, was to keep remembering that I was speaking with all those Jews in Russia on my shoulders, and that I wasn't speaking. I was simply their mouthpiece. And that's really what I'm doing today.
1: You were an incredible mouthpiece for so many, many, many people. My goodness. Uh, Thank you, Esther, for your question. We have a question from Paul in Tel Aviv. Looking back, is there one moment that was extra special that you knew that you were making progress?
0: Yeah, this meeting in 1989 that we had I mean, you have to understand briefly that every meeting that an American made or anyone from Europe made with a refusenik was bugged and surreptitious in apartments, only one person in an apartment by themselves. You want to have a conversation, you walk outside. And we brought 83 people publicly all together including the State Department head in open meetings with Jews who traveled from literally, literally from Siberia, from Odessa um, to from the Baltics. People came in hundreds to meet with us and to see Jews together from Russia from America, from Israel, from France. Someone came from Holland to see us all together. And the Soviets couldn't, we were afraid to touch us. They didn't arrest us. They didn't, they tried to intimidate us. There was some, a few false alarms, but the fact that we could pull this off gave me tremendous hope. And it was like a tremendous, it was like another one of those experiences where you say, okay, maybe we can can do this
1: a uh, question from Barbara in Los Angeles do many Jews of Russian descent know what you actually did for
0: them? Barbara I have to tell you it isn't a question what I did for them. they don't Russian Jews do not know their own history i I wrote this book because I Think that they know have to know the incredible people on the inside of the Soviet Union that forged the immig- path to immigration that chiseled open the doors for them. I remember in 1979, people would call me in my office and say, "Pamela, which is what they called me, can you her, can you send for my family? What do you mean send for them? I'm not highest. I've got to get them out." People didn't know in 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 those years how they got out. And and it's really one of my dreams that every, you know, every person who came from the Soviet Union and their families will be familiar with this history. And Barb, I've got to tell you that I'm the last one who can tell the story. There wasn't anyone yet who there isn't any anyone from my movement who is still who is alive now who was up Working in partnerships with the with the refused Nix. there is no one left who was you know a witness to history, and I, this is the last story that can be told like this: Oh, and it's so essential. People do need to
1: know their own histories. I love when you said Pamela, because you know what we think of. We think of the Sasha Baron Cohn movies uh, oh. and the character Pamela, um, the way he pronounced Pamela. Okay, a question, sorry, I had to say that. So a question here from Sarah in Paris. Uh, do you
0: personally know Natan Sharansky and if yes what is he like? Okay. So I met Nathan came out of uh, Russia in 80 in uh, I think it was February of 1986 and I met him um that spring. And um, we had here a hearing um on Capitol Hill, in which he and the former dissident Yuri Orlov testified um, he uh, I was shocked that um someone who had been sitting in um, prison and and isolated isolated shelves for nine years had the exact same view of the world and of the Soviet Union of the Soviet jury movement that I did. He's very, very, very bright. I, I saw him, in fact, uh, three weeks ago when we were. Uh, he he spoke at the launch of my book in Jerusalem uh, uh, in August. Um, he's he's smart. He's incisive. He's very, very funny. Um, he's got a mm-hmm. great sense of humor. Um, and he was arrested because he was a link between the Jewish movement and the dissident movement. The Soviets didn't like that. And his wife is as equally, is, I have to say, I've known I've known, um, Avital Sharansky since she was Natasha Stiglitz before, you know, before their marriage. And she is also another one of these people of just enormous personal courage. She, like me, also didn't like the publicity. We also didn't, she also didn't like to be in the public eye. And she also didn't like public speaking that because of her husband, she was also forced to to do that. And she was his chief spokesman.
1: Well, Pamela, I am sorry that we need to wrap this up, but it's been an amazing journey. uh, Just even listening to your stories and how you did this, you are a symbol of the expression Hineni uh, here I am, I'm going to help. Uh, uh, it's just amazing. And we see these people now today at Stand With Us. This is so important in terms of the history of the Jewish people and the history of Soviet Jewry. And, uh,
0: can, I just just add, can I just make one, one final comment, um, which is something that I really didn't see while I was doing this work, Um, I saw it only afterwards, but I learned somewhere along in my life that we were expelled from Jerusalem because of our disunity. And this miracle of this largest rescue of Jews in history, I see in retrospect as a result of our tremendous unity. The unity between Jews in the Soviet Union, and Jews in Paris, by the way, and in in South America, and all over all, all over the world. If we're united and we are with those people who are being victimized um, wherever they are, and we listen to their voice and we hear what they want, and we instead of being paternalistic and decide what should be done on their behalf. But if we take their leadership and we carry their burden for them, we create a tremendous unity that I think cannot be defied and ultimately brought down the Soviet Union.
1: Amazing. So if we work together, yeah. if more of us say "hinani" like yeah. you did, yes. uh, we, we can really accomplish so much together.
0: Thank you so That's much,
1: a, yes. That is a great way to end this incredible conversation. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. Let's show the book again, if we can, and uh, and remind everybody you can get it on Amazon. And uh, the first uh, printing was sold out,
0: right? That's yes. what I the first printing sold out in eight incredible weeks. And um, I just saw that today the book is now again available in hardback. We're starting another uh, uh, round so you can get it on hardback or paperback. And it's uh, it's it's I think you'll find it exciting. There's a lot of um, a lot of exciting adventures that that we did not talk about, but I guarantee you won't be bored.
1: Thank you again so much for being with us on Stand With Us TV. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much for letting me be here. It was great having you with us today on Stand With Us TV. Watch the great shows that you've missed, like our interview with Dumasani Washington, Ambassador Michael Oren, and Senator Joe Lieberman, and so many others. Just go to standwithus.tv. It's free, and you'll find a ton of video content there. And don't forget, if you love the work of Stand With Us, you can support us at standwithus.com forward slash donate. We look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you for standing with us and shalom from Stand With Us.